Well, my name is Ruth Wedgwood. I'm a professor of law and diplomacy at uh, Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C., in the School of Advanced International Studies, uh, where I hold the Berlin chair. Uh, for many years, I was a professor of law at Yale Law School in New Haven. I sit as the U.S. member of the UN Human Rights Committee, and I've taught at the Hague Academy uh, in Holland, um, have been a delegate to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and uh, discover, as so many international law professors do, that this becomes your whole world, not just your professional world, but your world of friendships and culture and travel and moral engagement. And I'm very pleased to be here today. Now, I thought I would talk about, for at least this first lecture, uh, what I do for nine weeks a year, which is work on the United Nations Human Rights Committee sitting in Geneva and in New York. And frankly, I think it's good to have this tape because uh, when I was a simple country law professor at Yale, I barely knew what the committee did. I knew that there were human rights treaties that had been negotiated over the course of the 1960s and 1950s. I knew that the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was the great granddaddy of all the other treaties, had a committee for its enforcement. But I certainly didn't really appreciate how the committee worked or what it did or how effective it was or wasn't. And it was not until, frankly, I was asked by the State Department to stand for election uh, for the committee that I really got my sense, fingerspitzgefühl, that sort of uh, tradecraft sense of what it meant to enforce human rights in a UN setting. So let me just go back to, to basics. As, as you all know, uh, basically after World War II, when the UN Charter was signed, it included in Articles 55 and 56 a duty on the parts of states to take joint and several action to promote human rights. And from 1948 forward, uh, there was active consideration of how to do that. There was, of course, the famous and important Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was passed as a General Assembly resolution in 1948 with no negative votes, although with eight abstentions from Saudi Arabia and some other countries. Uh, the Universal Declaration spoke of both civil and political rights, things like the right to free speech, the right to vote, or at least take part in democratic uh, governance, uh, but also economic and social rights, the right to social security, the right to work. Um, and after that declaration was passed, which was an enormously important event, I have to say, done with a bit of diplomatic finesse. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is said to have assured all the member states voting for it, don't worry, it's not legally enforceable. <laughs> and <laughs> not, not warning them that it would become culturally enforceable. It would become the sine qua non of a decent nation state. But after the Universal Declaration was passed uh, in the General Assembly in 1948, the Human Rights Commission then got down to work to try to incorporate its norms into treaty instruments. They broke apart the two baskets of civil and political rights and economic and social rights, thinking that political and civil rights were negative rights, limitations 
on what the state should do. There are taboos on the state to protect individuals. And then economic and social were positive rights, where the state would oftentimes have to take part in sustaining uh, an economic entitlement, or at least assure that the free market was doing so in its place. And some of, I think, the uh, uh, Western countries had some scruples about how you styled economic and social rights, because they at least did not want to do it in a fashion that interfered with the primacy of a market economy. So we have these two negotiations going on. They take a very long time. You're in the Cold War, don't forget. And the treaties are not ready, these two treaties, until 1966. Long time, long gap, 18 years. And then a uh, long process of ratification by states' parties. Uh, they come into force in 1976. Now, since I'm an American, I will say with only mild embarrassment that uh, the U.S. does not actually ratify the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights until 1992. Doesn't mean we didn't take it seriously. Um, there actually is, as you know, a duty to uh, act in good faith in light of a signature of a treaty, even if you haven't finally ratified. But still, in a country that's traditionally been isolationist, that has issues of federalism, signing up for treaties is a very big event. We finally did sign up. It was George Herbert Walker Bush who actually uh, uh, pushed for the advice and consent from the American Senate. And then finally we were entitled to send a person, or at least nominate a person, to stand for election to the committee, which was initially Tom Bergenthal, who was a very great man, who's now on the International Court of Justice, and then Lou Henkin, who was the, our revered professor from Columbia Law School, and then their unworthy successor, which is little me. Uh, and so we've had three Americans on. I stood for re-election in 2006 and did rather well, I have to say, <laughs> in, in the tally. You discover in UN politics that um, a lot of it's personal, a lot of it's charm, speak a little French, uh, and show enthusiasm for the enterprise. Uh, and then even in the height of the uh, controversy over this issue or that in interstate politics, you can actually do things. So the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights will look like the Bill of Rights of most countries. Again, right to speech, uh, right to uh, 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 be spared any arbitrary detention, uh, the right to due process and criminal procedure. It's got other rights that will sound a bit more like group rights, though. It has a right, it speaks of a, the right of self-determination. There's always controversy who gets to self-determine. There's an old joke in the Balkans, you, you should be a minority in my country instead of me be a minority in your country. So you'll have controversies from time to time of ethnic groups in larger states that want to be independent and claiming, arguing that the right of self-determination must mean a right of secession. Uh, that's a complicated issue. It's certainly not one that the committee has tackled in, on theories of secession. You also have issues of the rights of people, peoples as cultures. Uh, and the covenant itself recognizes a right of a person to take part in his culture with his group, but it doesn't speak of the group itself as being the entity that bears the rights. So the covenant's framed really in largely in terms of individual rights rather than group rights. It speaks of rights of families to respect and uh, rights of privacy. It, it goes quite a bit beyond actually where the American Bill of Rights goes. 
Um, what you discover when you try to interpret it is that uh, you have to engage in a difficult exercise of deciding whether you ever can justifiably surprise the state's parties. All legal instruments have an issue about how dynamic the interpretation can be. Should you just go back to the Trevo preparatoire, to the negotiating history, and figure out what Eleanor Roosevelt and Rene Cassin meant in 1950? Or are you entitled to try to reinterpret something in light of its language, but also in light of contemporary circumstances? And that's one that happens in the committee all the time. So let me tell you first a little bit about the committee. Um, we sit in Geneva twice a year for three weeks each for our main sessions, and in New York once a year. New York has many pleasures, and also there are some of us on the committee who think that it's important to remind the main political organs of the United Nations that the treaty bodies exist and have an important voice. Um, we are elected in our individual capacity, constantly correcting people, saying I'm not a representative of the U.S., I happen to be American, and that's true of all my colleagues, too. Uh, it's probably fair to suppose that people one way or the other pick up some of the legal culture of the country of origin. So it's not surprising that an American member may tend to have American views on certain issues, or a Frenchman, or a Senegalese, or an Egyptian. Um, but still, you don't represent your government. You don't take instruction from your government. You take an oath at the beginning to uh, consider cases on the merits and independently. Um, there is actually a, a careful process of recusal if your own government is the subject of a state examination. Uh, you are obliged to recuse yourself, so too if uh, a complaint is, complaint is brought against your government. So there's an attempt to keep you as independent as you can be. That said, as a political realist, I have to note that, in fact, candidates for the Human Rights Committee have to be nominated by governments. So it means you have to have your government wish to uh, ask you to stand for election or re-election. And some people have been on the committee for many, many terms, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, but frankly, it doesn't pay any money, so <laughs> it's not a great tragedy if, you, if in the exercise of your conscience as a committee member you don't get re-elected or get, get re-nominated. Uh, but I do think that one has to be aware that there is a subtler kind of uh, state, I won't say influence, but a kind of constraint where uh, people sometimes don't get re-nominated by their states because of positions that they've taken. Um, 18 members, uh, largely from the first world, I have to say, and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, frankly, I don't want the committee to become a uh, form of multilateral moral colonialism. I think it's hugely important to have participation from Latin America, from Africa, from Asia. But it tends to be the developed states that uh, think of putting up a candidate that have the money to do a campaign in New York so you can meet with delegations and have coffee in the Indonesian lounge and talk about the committee. Um, rarely have we had members from Sahelian Africa, from sub-Saharan uh, Africa. Um, and that's unfortunate. We, I think it's very important that the norms that we frame be capable of application to countries all over the world. Europe itself has a highly developed regional human rights system. Latin America, North America have the inter-American regional system that sits in Costa Rica. Uh, Asia is just getting started with the ASEAN Human Rights Commission. But um, 
still, one does not want this to be a, 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 a solipsistic European conversation. Uh, and therefore, if I were Secretary General or High Commissioner for Human Rights, I would urge the states from uh, Africa and other less developed parts of the world to think very carefully about the benefits that one can gain uh, by having people who are familiar with those legal cultures uh, be part of the committee's work. I'll give you one interesting new example. We've recently begun to worry about how the covenant relates to customary law. You typically think of the covenant as restraining the state. But in so many countries, the way that power is effectively wielded over individuals is at the village, clan, tribal, group level. A woman trying to inherit land in Benin is going to look to his, her tribal leader. And the issue has arisen now in a very plangent way. Should we say that customary legal institutions, non-formal legal institutions, which may be given a great deal of deference by the formal state, are those customary legal institutions themselves bound by the covenant? How would you think about a right to a lawyer in a tribal court, which hears uh, uh, less serious criminal allegations? So I do think it's important to have people from the developing world in the committee so this does not become a hothouse exercise of the haute bourgeoisie, uh, but something that really makes sense in a variety of different uh, settings. But that said, we've had members from typically the US, Australia, Canada, Britain, France, uh, Latin America. At the moment, we have members from Colombia, Ecuador, um, and uh, Venezuela. Um, we often have North African members. We currently have a member from Egypt, a member from Tunisia. Uh, we have a member from Japan, have had for quite a while. Member from Ireland, I'm surely leaving someone out. Member from Mauritius, a lovely member from South Africa, who's the vice chairman of their uh, Human Rights Commission. Typically, the members are either retired judges. We have the former Chief Justice of India, Mr. Bhagwati, whose brother is the famous economist Jagdesh. Bhagwati, very smart family. And Mr. Bhagwati is 80-something and going great guns. We have the former Chief Justice of Mauritius. Um, we have had retired diplomats, uh, Egypt and others. I, I, f I forgot to mention France, which was a, was a great sin. Uh, we have a brilliant French member, Madame Chanet, who was a judge on the Cour de Cassation, which is like the Supreme Court in France. Um, so we have diplomats, we have judges, we have people who, from academia, whose major focus in, uh, focus in academia is human rights, whose schools uh, genteely frame their teaching schedule around their obligations to the committee. And then we have some normal academics, or more, I suppose, uh, uh, wide-ranging academics, in which I would classify myself. Um, where actually the committee's schedule can be very challenging, coming in the middle of each semester. You should see me flying back and forth on the shuttle to New York or back and forth to Geneva twice in a two or three week period. But it's doable. Uh, it's, it's worrisome though, I don't want the committee to become just a committee of retired people or of people who only think about the 
claims of a human rights activist without also thinking about the problems of governance because you want solutions that governments can live with. So unlike the European Court of Human Rights, we more rarely have people who've worked in government in capacities other than as human rights ombudsmen or uh, human rights commissioners. Um, the kind of work we do, um, sometimes boring, sometimes thrilling. Uh, I, I tease my students at Yale and Johns Hopkins and tell them it's like waiting in a bus station for the bus to arrive and then all of a sudden there's an emergency. <laughs> but we meet on a UN schedule, uh, just to get nitty gritty for a moment, 10 to 1 and 3 to 6. We often have briefings before we convene at 10 or in the lunch period. Um, we are enormously uh, indebted to NGOs, non-governmental organizations. These are human rights organizations that collect data, the, the data we depend on. And when we're going to do a country examination, I have never been around the prisons of Russia. I've never been around the prisons of Kenya. And only if I have NGO material, or perhaps some of the country reporting by the European Union, by the U.S. State Department, by Freedom House, by uh, will I be able to proceed in a, in a concrete way? So one thing we try very much to do in the committee is both to be individually appreciative of NGO work, to encourage the states that come before us to see the NGOs and civil society organizations not as adversaries but as helpers. Uh, same argument that you would give about the Red Cross, Red Crescent, Logan David, the, the, the humanitarian law organization in Geneva, a military commander should be grateful to the ICRC because in a sense it gives him a feedback loop of what's really happening in his military jails. And so to a state should be grateful to my mind that NGOs bother to collect data about the state that the state itself may not know. So we are deeply dependent on their work. We invite them to be part of our country examinations. We often hail the state party if it's uh, involved NGOs in the very process of framing a report um, and just try to create a, a safe space for NGOs to work. I mean, to be completely frank, it's easy to belong to an NGO in North America. I'm not sure at all I would have the physical courage, the personal courage, to be part of an NGO in some countries of the world where states retaliate against people who criticize the government. So this is really essential, important work. Um, and the way it proceeds is that we ask the states that are parties to the covenant to report to us on a schedule of every four to five years. You have to start reporting when you ratify the covenant and then you're supposed to report for a checkup uh, every four or five years thereafter. Um, so one modality of, of how we work is, is these state reports. We always urge the states to try to be as empirical, as, as nitty-gritty, as granular, as factual as they can. Young states that come to us for the first time often just give us a precy of their laws. And you know, on paper, many countries' laws sound great. It's the failure to apply them. So we constantly urge the states' parties they should be transparent to themselves. We want to know about how many arrests for police brutality. We want to know about deaths in jail. We want to know about whether anybody actually was charged with criminal libel for, uh, for criticizing the head of state. It's no good just to recite the platitudes of, of law. I mean, law is clearly very important, but you can have great laws and bad policy. 
So we often ask them to go back. And, and you discover a limitation, frankly. Many states are not administrative states. They don't have this self-knowledge and self-awareness. And you have to ask them to collect things that they've never thought to collect. But we ask them to file the report. Um, we have then taken up a procedure of trying to focus in the oral examination with more uh, specificity. And we frame a series of questions to the state party to think about and prepare answers for when they actually physically come before us. And we do that now in a task force. Uh, state party goes away, comes back probably two sessions later, half a year, two-thirds of a year later, and appears in Geneva uh, or New York on the podium, sometimes with small delegations, sometimes with big delegations. I chortle and rejoice every time they bring the chief of police or the minister of the interior. I want to talk to the guy who's actually making the policy and acknowledging the essential importance of human rights commissioners and ombudspeople and uh, Paris principles, uh, as a way of framing national human rights institutions. Nonetheless, I personally am often disappointed if the state party only sends their human rights commissioner. I want to look the police chief in the eye and say, I'm an ex-prosecutor. Why in the world do you have so many cases of police brutality? How many prosecutions have you had? So they come before us, sometimes with a delegation of 20 people, sometimes a delegation of three. Um, sometimes with more women than are on the committee itself, sometimes with no women, uh, some once in a while with an indigenous person, often not. And we often remark upon the composition of the delegation itself. And then they uh, uh, report. Um, you learn in the UN setting that it's often quite frustrating because the problem of translation, of respecting the phonic space of the three authentic languages. We work in Spanish. French and English, that every document has to be in those three languages. And the bottleneck in UN operations is often that the translation department is underfunded and under-resourced. And therefore, even when a state party brings us written answers to our written questions, we can't just skim them. We have to actually have the state party read them out loud. It's chewing up enormous amounts of time in order to have them translated in French and Spanish for our colleagues who don't choose to operate in English. So we have the state answer the questions. Uh, then we pause halfway through. We follow up. And that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where we really try to bore in with a little body language, you know, usually very gracious, uh, recalling our last trip to whichever country and how our best friend from law school was from that country and how beautiful the capital city is. But what about <laughs> the following six outrageous things? And we try to keep it in diplomatic language. Um, we don't get histrionic or wave our hands around. But you do want, I think, the whole point of a viva voce live appearance is to try to break through the glacial diplomatic demeanor of, a, of an ordinary participant and persuade him, A, that the committee can be helpful to him, going back home, telling Parliament he needs more money for jail, B, if he doesn't do that, that there may be consequences. And countries value their reputations. When you go for your, your loan at the World Bank or your, your drawing rights at the Monetary Fund or your assistance at the UNDP or UNICEF, people like to have good report cards. And uh, a country that's gotten a bad report card, especially now with the World Wide Web, where everything is distributed to everybody, 
um, they, they take umbrage at that. So you try to persuade the country that it's within their means, that it's good for them, um, that you're really just there to assist them. It's a little bit like a best practices um, blog. You're not just there to be holier than thou, but to say, look, we've seen other countries that have done it this way. Might you want to think about that? So we have that dialogue on the first part of the report, second part of the report. Um, we always run out of time. <laughs> you have countries that run down the clock. You know, if a country doesn't much want to talk about an issue, they'll read through their written answers very slowly. <laughs> and then you have a hurried dialogue at the end. Um, sometimes they send very low-level people, and then you know they're not interested. One of my hoped-for reforms, which I'm working on with my colleagues, is the possibility of podcasting. Because I do think that for young people in so many countries around the world, it would not just be the formal concluding recommendations that we make. It's the process. There's a famous Marshall McLuhan quote, I think the medium is the message, or the process is the product. And to hear the government have to answer questions, particularly a government that's not democratic, but answer questions somewhere, uh, is I, I think it would be thrilling to certain populations where they can't openly criticize the head of state without being accused of les majeste or libel. Uh, just the, the process is the product. They should see how this works. It would also be good for the committee. It would be good for the state party. You'd put it up on the web. It would bounce around the blogosphere and a high school class in, in a country in Africa or a country in Asia could then listen to it on their own time. So I've been gently working on my colleagues, and I think it actually may come to pass. Uh, just as we're using a, a new medium here, using the web, it would be very good, I think, to have these conversations on, on the web. And then at the end, uh, we tell the state party, if they have any details they left out, they can send them a letter in the mail. And we sit down to draft the concluding recommendations. They're often done in rather starchy diplomatic language. I always try to make mine punchier being an American. Uh, but basically, you want to send the message to the state, what are the priority issues. Um, we choose three or four of those recommendations for a report back in a year, something that's urgent and doable within a year. If you have, well, recently we had a country that had uh, people who were being deported held in very inappropriate physical facilities without adequate hygiene, access to lawyers, ac access to doctors, and we said, you know, you can fix this in a year and you better. So we ask for a report back in a year. But otherwise, the country takes it home and uh, does with it what they will, or present it to the legislature, uh, disseminate it to the population, ignore it. Um, but that's what we try to do, is to just send the message which prioritizes for them what are the most critical problems. The second product we sell or offer uh, is a individual uh, complaint procedure for countries that have ratified an optional protocol. The U.S. hasn't done it, by the way, but Canada has, Australia has, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan have, Belarus has. And in that procedure, anybody who's the victim of a violation of the covenant, it could be a prisoner in jail, it could be a guy who was beat up by the police. It could be somebody who was not allowed to protest on a public street. Uh, is entitled to write to the committee, um, even in non-legal language, doesn't need a lawyer, and say that the following thing was done to me. And frankly, uh, one of the things we do, it's a mixture of functions, but part of the, the staff of the committee 
helps the complainant, the victim, frame his complaint in legal language. And then it goes back to the state for their reply, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, perhaps three times. And then ultimately we have to decide if there's a violation. Um, and we get a draft from the staff and cogitate on it, edit it, disagree with it, and take a vote. Um, it's interesting to see the decision rules that are used at the UN. I had no understanding of this when I was a law student, much less a lawyer. Uh, many things in the UN, as you may know, are done by consensus. And what that means is that oftentimes it's the several persons in the room who have the most intense views who carry the day, and everyone else goes along because even though they might disagree, they don't care very much. And country reports with our concluding observations are done by consensus. You can't dissent. On the communications, these individual complaints, you can dissent or concur, write a separate opinion. And then you get some of the most interesting jurisprudence of the committee because you have people drawing distinctions and having a legal conversation with each other about how far, how fast to take the language of the, of the covenant. Um, but also there's a sense of solidarity, I think, and not wanting to undermine the authority of the committee. So at least I try to limit my dissents to not be picayune, but rather issues where I think there's a different view that deserves to be expressed. Um, one issue that often does come up is how much we should surprise the state's parties. Uh, for those of you who know some international law, you'll know that when you sign up to a treaty, you oftentimes can take something called reservations. Those are like footnotes saying, I agree with everything you say, except I'm reserving on my right to wear a blue shirt on Thursdays. It can't be something that entirely goes against the purpose of the treaty. It can't frustrate the object and purpose of the treaty. But it can be a small item that you need to change because of some peculiarity of local law or local preference. Um, but the interesting point I just want to draw out here is that when you have dynamic treaty interpretation, when the treaty may be at least slowly changing meaning over the course of 10 or 20 or 30 years, still the law of reservations currently says you can only reserve at the time you join the treaty. So I've, I've teased my law students at least about the idea of jumping reservations, that if the committee or a, if any treaty took on a meaning very different from what it had when you signed up for it, should the international legal system think about some way of permitting a kind of re-reserving, a, re a, a secondary reservation, because after all, you didn't know to reserve initially because no one was reading it that way. Anyway, I've never done that, but I have done, actually we had one odd funny case in which uh, a Spanish Marquess complained that she was not allowed to succeed to the rights of the duchy, or was it a duchy and a Marquess, which way around, I forget, but uh, that, that we should apply the norms of equality to the rights of inheritance of noble titles. And my committee came out more conservatively than I did. I thought you could be gender equal even if aristocracy by itself is uh, not an egalitarian institution. And in many countries, these hereditary titles not only are nice little uh, ornaments, but have real power. In Africa, a clan leader, a tribe leader, may very well be wielding political power, juridical power. So I didn't think it was a funny case. I thought it was a serious case. And it turned out that Spain had taken a reservation, at least to protect at that time, the 
gender specificity of the head of state. That is, the king of Spain had to be a king, not a queen. And they had taken that reservation to the Women's Convention, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So I thought whatever formal law said, one should at least give them the benefit of that reservation if we were ever to think about the royalty of Spain in light of gender equality. But still I found that at the Marquess and Duchess level that there had to be a non-discriminatory gender qualification. But I, I cite that only to note that uh, the interplay of dynamic interpretation and reservations is, it, is more complicated than people uh, may give credit. So we do those, and every so often we accumulate enough uh, opinions from the individual complaints that it seems to behoove us to uh, think about collecting the jurisprudence in a more summary form. And some scholars do this, patient, wonderful scholars. Uh, Sarah Joseph has a very good book. Alfred Isaias has just finished a book. Um, Mumford Novak has a wonderful book, Austrian scholar. Um, but the committee itself at times wants to try to do this. To my mind, the reason to do it is to make this kind of jurisprudence just more amenable, user-friendly, accessible to judges in national states systems who may not know very much international law, just to translate it from the gobbledygook into something that's clear and evocative and, and aesthetic and appealing. Um, so we've done these so-called general comments from time to time to sum up our jurisprudence. Um, in principle, there's something else that could happen, but it never happens. Uh, the, the covenant allows for a state-to-state -state complaint, but no state has ever felt the occasion to bring a human rights complaint against another state party. So this one has really become, uh, become moot. Um, now let me just mention a few of the problems of the committee and some of the issues in international law before beyond the one about reservations. First, on, on, on how we operate, caseload really is a problem. If you do the math, we now have 165 states' parties. We can cover 15 reports a year. States are supposed to report every five years. That would mean, if I can still multiply correctly, that we could probably maximally do 75 countries, but we have double that as a number of states' parties. And that's a problem. And there's no obvious way to fix it. Um, some people have proposed there should be a full-time human rights court or committee. Frankly, I couldn't do this work full-time. It's got an intensity, uh, kind of a physical, emotional, political, juridical intensity that wouldn't permit you to be effective full-time. Um, Secondly, the danger of that caseload is that we tend to, uh, I think, perhaps do the work that's in front of us. So if a, if a, if a rel relatively attentive state has filed its report on time, we'll do it again, even though we just did that state five years ago. And we neglect the states that never report. We have a long list of states that are decades overdue. We finally invented a procedure by which we can take up a state performance even if they have never filed because it's their obligation to file so we'll sort of act like the chancellor and do the best we can even with their default. Typically we will tell them we're going to examine them at the next session. They often show up then and ask leave to file the report and have a real examination. But we have lots of those states and we're not getting through that list with the efficacy that we should. So it, it can be sort of a nice, a nice government's club instead of some of the states that I think most probably need more conversation and more 
more attention on the communications. So too, uh, we have a great many more communications than we can get through. Um, I also worry about how you allocate money in the process. Uh, if I was high commissioner, I'd be looking at my overall budget, the money I want to build capacity in states, the money I want for special rapporteurs, the money that UNICEF wants to give you know, milk to children and mothers. And when you look at how we currently handle uh, communications, we write an opinion on every single one in the format of he said, she said, he said, she said, complainant, state party, complainant, state party, complainant, state party, and then our disposition. And I, I wonder, and I'm raising the issue politely with my colleagues from time to time, whether there isn't a way to write opinions so that the document itself is more accessible to the reader, so it's cheaper to produce. If you think about UN work, to produce a printed page of anything with translation costs about $1,200. So if you do a 35-page opinion before you dismiss a case, you've spent upwards toward uh, $50,000. Uh, plus committee time itself in session costs somewhere between $3,000 and $10,000 an hour with translators and note takers. So when I think about this, I'm not a business person, but still wanting the UN to be as effective as possible in its various functions, uh, I don't want us to become a paper factory. I want us to be, have a capacity to focus on what's important. Um, I'd rather be actively soliciting African bar associations, Asian bar associations, to bring us complaints than to be doing, and this is a, just my own personal expression of taste, um, appeals of unhappy civil servants from the countries of Europe. Um, there are a lot of serious issues out there, and I, in my view, it's a personal view, not the committee's view, we have to find a way to make, uh, attempt to assure, even though ever anybody has a right to bring a complaint in the way we handle them, to try to focus our, our limited time resources on ones that really go to the core of human entitlements in situations of emergency and, and importance. I should also uh, mention one thing about the attempt to intervene in an emergency situation. Most international bodies, including the International Court of Justice, have a uh, preliminary stage where they can do what a common lawyer would consider to be an injunction. They call it provisional measures, asking the state party to freeze the status quo, to stop the clock while the case is considered. If it's a capital punishment case, not to execute the prisoner and make the issue moot. Um, and we therefore have a special rapporteur for new communications who can intervene with the state and say, you know, stop the clock. It's your legal duty to do so. Uh, and that happens from time to time. States sometimes do it and sometimes, sometimes don't. Now, some of the substantive issues that are, that are, are interesting and, and, and difficult. Um, one, one I think I did mention, how dynamic should your jurisprudence be? Uh, how much can you be as international lawyers like to say, teleological, you know, sensing the larger purpose of the enterprise and maybe re reading the language with a little bit of spin or moxie or interpretive largesse. Um, it's a debate on every constitutional court. You have originalists, you have people who think that a court is instead entitled to try to frame their decision based in part on current mores that go beyond the text. Um, but we have that on a number of issues. One, for example, is capital punishment. Um, uh, a great many states, all of Europe certainly, 
about half of Africa, ha most of Latin America, if not all, has abolished capital punishment. The covenant itself does not abolish the capital punishment, but it says to states that you should um, reserve capital punishment to the most heinous and serious crimes. But one issue that comes up is how much should we interpret uh, articles of the covenant that might uh, uh, be seen as more tolerant of capital punishment in a way that minimizes that tolerance. I'll give you one example. We had a case from Philippines, and this is a published case, in which the Philippines had suspended its capital penalty uh, in order to review which crimes capital punishment might be applicable to. And I believe actually now c Philippines has abolished capital punishment, but at the time they had not. And the committee took the view that that suspension um, for the purpose of self-examination was as if they had abolished it and therefore they couldn't reinstate it. And that may have systems effects that I might find ineffective if you want states to try to think about abolition you know, give them a time out when they can do it. But some of my colleagues took a different view. Fair enough. But, but how much you can go beyond the text is often an issue. We rarely, if ever, run up to Palais des Nations to look at the travaux preparatoire. Believe it or not, the travaux on so fundamental a treaty has been published only in a very summary form in one uh, book, but there's no online web available photocopied duplicate of the deliberations of the Human Rights Committee. So we often, in fact, don't have the uh, available to us easily the uh, sort of starting point of interpretation that you might use if you were an originalist, or even if you weren't, but just wanted to know what Eleanor Roosevelt and René Cassin thought about the issue. We have an interesting ongoing debate. This is a community-wide debate about the relationship between human rights law and the law of armed conflict. And I don't know how many of you viewers out here have studied the law of armed conflict. Uh, it's a very important body of law. It, it, it takes account of the tragedy of war, of the exigencies of war, the fact that a state fighting a war may feel that its survival is at stake. And it says, nonetheless, within that framework, we can demand of you some at least minimum uh, performance of not ever abusing prisoners, of never deliberately striking at civilians or civilian objects and facilities. And when you're targeting a military object or a military person, which is what fighting a war is about, uh, you should minimize or at least keep proportionate the harm to nearby civilian facilities or civilian people. This is the idea of proportionality and avoiding collateral damage. But still, law of armed conflict uh, has some features that would be seen as very extraordinary in peacetime, you know, capturing prisoners and keeping them detained. So one debate we're constantly having is how do you integrate these two bodies of law, human rights law and law of war? Does one trump the other, which is superior? My own view is that IHL, law of war is often called international humanitarian law. It's confusing because it has the H word in it, but it's IHL and HR are separate, human rights law or international humanitarian law also known as law of armed conflict. My own view is that 
um, you certainly would read the Law of Armed Conflict, IHL, in a different way in 50 years later once you've had human rights law develop. I mean, things that would have passed muster in World War II would no longer be accepted, even if the treaty hasn't changed. But at the same time, they are distinct. And there are problems in wartime that are different from the problems of civil governance in peacetime. So even uh, some of the um, specialized monitoring bodies for uh, law of armed conflict, like the important International Committee of the Red Cross, may at times take the view that uh, a, a issue should be governed by IHL, law of armed conflict, and not by human rights law directly. Um, we have a debate about whether the covenant applies onshore or offshore. What do you do if a country acts abroad? The covenant speaks of uh, matters that occur on the territory and within the jurisdiction of the state party, should you read the and as an or? And we had a series of court cases that arose from um, some extraterritorial death squads in the 1970s and 80s in which the committee first began to explore the claim that the covenant might apply even to foreign sort of so-called foreign policy operations or national security operations that apply offshore. Um, we newly have some interesting issues coming up about the relationship between the covenant and organs of the United Nations. Because the UN, as you probably know, doesn't sign treaties. It, 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 it administers them. It ought to act in accordance with them, but it does not see itself as being technically bound by them. But we've begun to have cases where some of the issues of due process that would be required of a state when it acted on its own authority are being raised on issues of multilateral organs that take action to try to uh, protect international security. If you have sanctions, say, against a, a group that's thought to be giving uh, financing to terrorism, international terrorism. The Security Council has uh, um, two committees that do that. Um, what, if any, obligations does the state party have in advancing names to such a committee. Um, can you name a supposed suspected company thought to have given money to a terrorist organization without giving it due process, even though the uh, Security Council has ordered you to do so? So it's an interesting, it, it, it's ironic, I suppose, as the United Nations takes on more core issues of governance, it's begun to have some of the same problems of how you use intelligence and how you protect intelligence sources, and yet how you uh, protect due process for individuals. Same problems that governments face constantly. Let me say a few more things since I may be running out of time. Um, one of the issues on state performance for uh, even good faith parties is the problem of federalism. A great many countries, as you know, have a national government but then they have states or provinces or lender in Germany uh, that have quite substantial independent constitutional powers. What do you do when you have a national government sign the country up to our treaty to respect human rights, but some of the issues of violations may occur at the state lender province level? Now, it could be that in a particular state, uh, the central government could order this sub-national jurisdiction to comply. But in many countries, they're quite independent. So what do you do when 
state responsibility, international responsibility, which may result in damages as well, uh, is only encountered at the central government level, but it's the province, the lender, the, 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 the local state or city that is engaging in the behavior that constitutes a violation. Nobody's quite figured that out. Uh, it, it may be, in, in fact, almost a natural limit to how much compliance we can, we can uh, uh, reasonably expect. And, and you hope that much of the work that a committee like this does is by exhortation and cultural change and evocative uh, summoning to virtue and not simply by formal legal obligation. But it is a problem because oftentimes states' parties come back to us and say, sorry, we'd love to, but the province says no. We're stuck. And they may be using that as an excuse. But there are limits to how much people want to centralize power at the national level. And states and provinces are often very jealous of their, of their, uh, of their own power. Um, and I also, I think, am struck by the issue of uh, uh, being realistic about the amount of state compliance that we do get. If we, for example, deliver a, um, a uh, set of views in an individual case where there's a victim who's been beaten or tortured or uh, arbitrarily arrested, we will publish our views to the state party, and then we engage in a dialogue urging them to comply. And oftentimes that goes on for quite some time. Uh, and I have to say, I won't name the number, but uh, at one point when we did a headcount to see how many states were compliant with our views, it was much lower than I expected. I expected something up like a dentist, you know, 99.9% .9 compliance, not nearly hardly, uh, well, well, well below that. Um, even countries that are considered to have nice governments, you know, they're otherwise liberal governments or responsive governments, but many of our cases touch on issues of acute sensitivity, and you discover that uh, even genteel regimes are often not embarrassed to say no. So we have at them, and, and sometimes by dint of repetition you see a change in behavior. Um, Every state, as you know, has some human rights problems, uh, really, perhaps different levels of severity, but problems of the treatment of the Roma, of the gypsies, as they used to be called, is very, very common in Europe. Um, it just, it's just surprising how governments that otherwise are very attentive to um, civil and political rights are often quite heedless about how the Roma are segregated or their children are, are put in uh, segregated school slots and tracks. Um, always there's always a problem of pr police brutality because being a cop is a very hard job and uh, therefore I think attentiveness to that is something we will engage in with, with, with the nicest governments. Um, it's also, also very hard for governments to accept criticism so you'd be surprised how illiberal libel laws are libel is often used as a way of uh, shutting down uh, citizens' complaints, uh, even, again, by countries that otherwise are seen to have democratic and liberal regimes. So there's never a country where there's not some issue where I think one can usefully dialogue on it. Currently, we have many countries where, because of economic development, the capacity of indigenous peoples to survive economically is endangered, and we're beginning to think how to 
do those uh, issues. There are other issues to cover, um, and uh, uh, I can leave those to a different lecture, uh, but I'll just note them now, if, if I may. Um, we are not the only treaty body, and it's important to make the task of the state practical and economic, with seven treaty bodies and seven different treaties. Uh, a small, poor state may have a difficult time in filing reports at five-year intervals. So there has been discussion from time to time about some way to consolidate the treaty review process. But history plays a part, and these treaties grew up gradually, civil and political rights, economic and social rights, uh, the race discrimination treaty, the um, Women's Convention, the Children's Convention, the Torture Convention, now the new conventions on migrants and handicapped. And if you tried to meld them all into one hurly-burly six-hour uh, review, I think you would lose some of the salient detail and importance of those treaties. But one is aware of countries that, are, that feel overwhelmed economically, just administratively, and trying to file so many reports. So there's been an ongoing conversation about that. And then there's the issue of the relationship of these so-called expert bodies, these little bodies of diplomat, ex-diplomats, ex- or current professors and ex-judges, how they should relate to the more political organs that deal with human rights in the UN system. The third committee in the General Assembly on Economic and Social Matters, the Fifth Committee on Finance, the General Assembly itself, and then, of course, the new Human Rights Council. And that probably is an occasion for a different discussion. But there is the hope that the kind of rather neutral, surprisingly neutral, surprisingly apolitical kinds of reviews that we do um, where you're not carrying water for anybody else, where you're not beholden to your regional group, where you're just like Dick Tracy or the old detective show on American TV, just the facts, ma'am. You're just trying to be as uh, empirical as you can just to help the country understand more about itself. It's a fairly honest process. I was pleasantly surprised when I arrived. But the issue is how to preserve the integrity of that against a backdrop in which, for other reasons, you may want to have a political process in which various countries, with all of their jealousies, all of their loyalties, uh, get involved in di directly critiquing one another. And uh, there can be a kind of competition, I think, in which there's a, almost a danger that the integrity of the expert process, the treaty body process, might be challenged by a political process in which occasionally a country will give a friendly, clean bill of health to its best friend. Um, so there, that's another issue that has greatly concerned the, um, uh, the body in which I sit. So this may have sounded rather technical. I deliberately bring my students in as interns to see it in operation. Um, I think there are a number of countries that are suspicious of the process, which if they watched it would not be. Um, we've had uh, uh, a number of countries kind of look at our uh, proceedings before deciding whether to join the covenant. And uh, even if countries aren't fully compliant with our recommendations, we, uh, it's, it's good that they hear a different voice. It's a reality check. It's that, the old joke about conscience. It's the little voice that 
tells you somebody might be watching. And that's the kind of role the committee plays. We, finally I'll just note, uh, we take our, our, our views to be in general a kind of authoritative interpretation of the covenant and therefore part of the country's treaty obligation. Um, but at the same time, we don't claim that either the views in our individual cases or our concluding observations after the five-year country report are themselves directly binding legal obligations. It's an interesting, I think, useful mixture between law and politics. It's an authoritative interpretation, according to us, of a legal obligation. But what is clear, and, and most countries concede this, that the country has a, a, a legal duty to consider our views in good faith before rejecting them or accepting them. And it's that kind of conversational mode, I think, that will make the uh, treaty process effective. Uh, countries don't want to get screamed at, but every once in a while they, they just need a um, a reminder that uh, there's a different way to do things. And they, can, they can still do what they need to do as states and perhaps do it in a different way. Um, so I don't find the work, despite my bus station metaphor, when I began, uh, at times it's it's, I have to admit, at times it's deeply boring. <laughs> if you're just sitting there reading a document you already have in translation so the Spanish and French version can be put before our, my colleagues. But uh, there are moments when there really are opportunities to get up inside an issue and to really have an effect on a member of a delegation. And uh, that's why I leave my kid and my spouse and with all the household difficulties that it causes and go off to Geneva and New York three times a year. So thank you very much for listening.